Bud, you're here, a bit, bit chilly this morning, but um, God is going to bless us. Paul is coming to his grand finale. He's like a composer of music, and this is the, putting the finishing touches in the passage that we're going to study today in Romans chapter 8. Before we deal with that, I want to fairly quickly go over some material on assurance, because that's what I see his main point being. Yes, we could say he's telling us about the sovereignty of God and, uh, and so on, but he's trying to bring encouragement and assurance to these church members who are going to face really hard times. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you the praise and the glory for this new day, for the gift of life, not just physical life, but eternal life. For all of these glorious blessings that you just pour upon us. And some of them we've been studying in the book of Romans. Bless us this morning. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon your people. And um, may we give you all the praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In these uncertain times, what is the most sure thing in your life? Taxes? Death? And how about your relationship with God? Are there any doubts or fears in this area of your relationship with God? Perhaps the devil has been specially attacking us. We've fallen into sin. We feel a hypocrite. God seems so far away. Can we really be confident that God will always love us and bring us into His glory? Yes, I believe that we can be sure. God not only wants to save us, but also for us to enjoy the reality that we are saved. To have the full assurance that we are going through to glory. Only in a context of absolute security can the believer flourish into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen that God's goal is to bring us into conformity, into the image, shape us into the image of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so I have this phrase in here which is really important. And I truly believe this. Only in a context of absolute security can the believer flourish into the likeness of Jesus Christ. In other words, everything we're saying this morning has huge implications for our holiness and our sanctification and our walk with God. Some, some people have come to me and said, well, where's, where's the connection between what we've been talking about and sanctification? The connection is so close. It is so intimate. There are right ways of being sanctified and there are wrong ways. It's amazing how much of the New Testament emphasizes assurance. Now, is it too cold to take notes this morning? Anyone taking notes? All right, I'm going to give you some scripture. You won't have time, time to look these up in your Bible. 2 Peter 1.10 Be eager to make your calling and election sure. 1 John 5.13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, obviously writing to Christians, so that you may know that you have eternal 
life. 1 John 5.13 Philippians 1.6 Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 1.8 He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. So there are tremendous promises there. Those are just four verses. There are many, many verses. First one was 2 Peter 1.10. Okay, my main heading here is attacks upon assurance. Attacks upon assurance. We mentioned briefly yesterday Roman Catholicism. Deliberately discourages the teaching on assurance of salvation. The priesthood, the authority of the church, confession, indulgences, prayers for the dead help of the saints, purgatory, and so on, keep her people in doubt and uncertainty concerning their condition in this life and the next life. I heard a somewhat humorous uh, story, a true story, of an Italian family living in New York. And the priest would come round on a regular basis to collect money. And these these, uh, these Italian Catholics were pretty faithful uh, in paying into the church. And so, um, I believe that one of their loved ones um, had died. And so they said, well, we need to get him into, into paradise or, or whatever ever term they used. We need to get him out of purgatory into paradise. So you need to put a certain amount of money in. And so they did. And... Um, and this is happening in the 20th century. This is not 16th century Reformation period. And, uh, and they did. Well, in the meantime, a Seventh-day Adventist called Porter was going door to door, met uh, one of the family members of this Italian family, and she became a Seventh-day Adventist. And I think the family became Seventh-day Adventist. And so they stopped uh, paying in. The priest noticed that. He came around, and he says... He says um, we need to, yeah, you need to pay more money in to get your loved one uh, out of paradise because we've, we've got him into purgatory again. So they were switching all the time, just totally manipulating, uh, trying to manipulate this, this family. Uh, now, maybe this is an extreme example. Maybe it's, it's an abusive example. But it shows you the kind of control um, over the minds of the people that they have. And the only thing that can really set these people free is a true understanding of what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross, on Calvary. And eventually they understood that. The Reformation period, was some of the reformers were so anxious to emphasize justification by faith that they tended to go to an extreme of saying that if you do not have assurance, then you are not a Christian. That is not biblical. You can be a, a Christian without having uh, even a simple assurance of salvation. But my point is, that is never God's will. God has given us these tremendous promises. He wants us to think it through, to reason it through, to follow the arguments of someone like Paul, uh, so that we do have a complete assurance. What about Satan? Can Satan take away our salvation? No, we've said that before. But he will try to make sure that you do not enjoy your Christian walk. 
He'll try and make you a miserable Christian. A sad Ventist instead of a glad Ventist. He'll say things like, look at the darkness in your life. How can you possibly claim to be a child of God? And that's especially true when you've fallen flat on your face in sin. That's when he attacks the strongest. How do you refute the devil? You can't do it with your character perfection, especially if you've just fallen into sin. So the only way you can do it is to talk about the blood of Christ and what he has done for you on the cross. Satan sometimes will get you to look back at your wasted years. People that become Christians when they're 60, 70, 80 years of age, just think of all of those wasted years. So he'll dangle that before you. He'll dangle a form of sin in your life. There was a story I was reading, true story, that happened in in Great Britain, where this elderly man truly got converted. So for the first time in his life, he really is a Christian. And he's taking his first communion. And he is ecstatic. He is so happy. It's just as though he's in heaven already. He goes home. And as he's trying to sleep that night, Satan goes to work. Now remember, this is a babe in Christ. He might be up there in years, but he's truly spiritually a babe in Christ. And there was one thing that the devil dangled before him. And that was, uh, before he was a Christian, many years before he was a Christian, he had blasphemed the name of God. Now, Now, he had probably blasphemed the name of God many times in his life, but there was one specific incident that the devil really magnified. And this just devastated this young babe in Christ. And he went knocking on the pastor's door late at night. And the pastor had to go over and over and over again these tremendous promises of God. You know, you can get people that are so agitated, that that they're so distraught, that sometimes the only way that you can really find freedom for them is just to claim, say it aloud, Maybe get them to read it, if that's possible, these tremendous promises of God. So we are in a warfare, folks. I don't care how much assurance you have, you will be attacked, for sure. We are not sinless on this side of glory. Okay, so those are a few words on attacks upon assurance. What about false assurance? Satan is a master of counterfeit. He gives people a false assurance. False peace, false joy. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, we mentioned this recently. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The message to the Laodiceans is a very sobering message. I've been looking at that in a different way uh, than I previously have just lately. First um, John 2.19. I don't have that in my notes, uh, 
But I think that's the one where it says they, they left us, they were never part of us because they were never part of us. So you can have people in your midst that really seem to be pillars of the church, but they've never been converted, they've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. The scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Okay, let's talk about true assurance. We have a song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. What's the rest of it? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. So there's the glory right there. Focus on the glory. Uh, as of salvation. Is that right? Purchase of God. There's redemption. There's the cross. Born of the Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. There's the conversion. Washed in His blood. Redemption. Well, we sing it, but do we believe it? Do we live it? We're meant to have assurance and certainty for obvious reasons. Only in the context of absolute security can the believer flourish into the relationship with God. To enjoy this relationship, to flourish and grow the way God wants us to in holiness and sanctification to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of this is really important. We are to pray. What about our prayer life? Is our prayer life uh, one of confidence and assurance. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Uh, Hebrews 10.19-22 Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Christ or the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. If you don't have assurance of salvation, what will your witness be like? Pretty much non-existent, I would imagine. Miserable Christians don't attract others to Jesus Christ. We are meant to have peace and joy. And the scripture here is 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. There's a great passage here in, in 1 Peter. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Romans 5.1 and 2 Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we, we, and we or let us, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And as I said recently, when your life is on the line, when you're facing martyrdom, when the Emperor Nero is about to snuff out your life, you had better know which side you're on. You better know how sure is sure. Alright, the certainty of assurance. That takes us to Romans 8, our passage today. We're going to wrap this up. 
somehow, some way. All right, yesterday I asked, I left you on verse 30, 31, where Paul says, What then shall we say in response to this? So, if you're getting up this early in the morning, and it's so cold, we need to respond. We're not going to say if, since God is for us, the whole of Romans up to this point has been establishing that point. Who or what can be against us? So let's think what can be against us or who can be against us. We've already mentioned the devil. Family. You could be ostracized from your family. Luckily with my family that didn't happen. They didn't have a clue what I was doing when I was, the day I was getting baptized. They really didn't understand. They probably thought someone was going to sprinkle me somewhere. My dad came. My uncle came. Um, it was mainly a Jamaican church that I was, I was baptized in Manchester, England. We have a lot of folks from the Caribbean in our church in, in England. And uh, that was probably a two-thirds Jamaican church. And the place was packed. And quite a few of them knew something of my, my story, how I came to Christ. They probably didn't know all the details. And as the pastor started to rehearse, to rehearse some of those things, um, it got quite emotional in that room. And I was saying to myself, Terry, stiff upper lip, bulldog Englishman, uh, don't get too emotional. But as he started to rehearse, some of the things that God had done, I just, I just wept like a child. So my dad was probably there thinking, what's happening to my son? He wasn't a Christian. And my uncle wasn't a Christian. But most of the folks in that room were. And so when I... Um, and I was converted, of course, before I got baptized. And I was full of the Holy Spirit uh, from the very first moment I was, was saved by God. Um, but God zapped me again. God anointed me again. And I went down into that water weeping like a baby. And when I came up, I just had the power of the Holy Spirit all over me. I just said, praise the Lord! And the place just erupted. The rafters shook. And my dad and my uncle must have said, what's he got into? What cult has he got into here? But you know, that's the way it should be. I mean, God has saved my life, and in our baptism, we're just rejoicing that. It's kind of like Jesus, where the Father said, This is my Son, my blessed Son, just listen to Him. And Jesus, of course, is starting His public ministry. That's, that's one of the main reasons why we get baptized. We're starting our, our public ministry uh, for, as Christians to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was quite, quite a special time. So since God is for us, who or what can be against us? So, the devil, family, what else? Church members, oh, we shouldn't have to say church members, should we? That shouldn't have to come into it, but it does. What else? Ourselves, okay, what about ourselves? What's the problem there? Selfishness, navel-gazing, subjectivity, many things within ourselves. We're complicated creatures. And that's why it's so important to allow Scripture to shape to shape our formation and not look at other people and compare ourselves to other people 
aren't you get, glad that God doesn't grade on a curve? He doesn't just, just say, okay, the smart ones, they're the ones on top. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You can be a genius and not have a clue, not be the least bit interested in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the lady who brought me into the church, uh, Mrs. Brown from Kingston, Jamaica, um, didn't have much education, was not an educated lady, but she was a spiritual giant. And it wasn't the pastor that, that he sent to my door. It was this lady who was married to a Baptist who abused her. She had a bunch of children to take care of. She still found time to go door to door and try and uh, share the good news of Christ with other people. And in a very miraculous way, God, God used that woman to, to bring me into the church. I had asked God to lead me to his true, true people. And there's two things that I asked for. I said, Lord, they must believe all the Bible. Because the Bible had had a profound influence on my life up to that point. And as I told you earlier, I was a lone Christian. I didn't know any Christians on the face of the earth. I was just surrounded by unbelievers. And so that got old really quick, witnessing to people, and they weren't interested. They didn't understand. And, and uh, if you follow the love of Christ, you need to be around other people that are follow the love of Christ too. And I knew that God had a church, but I wasn't going to go church hopping. I just really wanted to see God's, God's leading. So I said, you must have people that believe the Bible all the Bible, and love Jesus. Those two things is what I asked for. And he had a Seventh-day Adventist on my doorstep so fast. And there are not a lot of Seventh-day Adventists in England, in Manchester, England. But he found one, and he had her. And uh, as, she, as we engaged in conversation, she was made, saying things to me that I had prayed to God in secret. It was a powerful miracle. In fact, I can say that Coming to Christ and becoming a Seventh-day Adventist has just been a series of incredible miracles in my life. And so, so when you get this direct answer to prayer, so obvious that you just can't miss it, then, then that's a very wonderful thing and a very humbling thing. And so, um, of course, I asked the $100 question, well, what church do you go to? And she said, Seventh day Adventist, it meant nothing to me. Zip, nothing. She could have said, I'm from Mars, and it would have been the same equivalent. But I was open minded, and I certainly was searching. Of course, I now had the Holy Spirit within me to, to guide me. And so I asked her what they believed. She said just a few things, which was, was wise. And we don't give people a three course meal when they just need a spiritual sandwich, right? So. She did sell me uh, uh, Arthur Maxwell book, Your Bible and You. Can have you, any of you remember Your Bible and You? And I hated the illustrations in that book. I thought they were terrible. But it did help me in a few areas. It cleared up a few areas on alcohol, and it straightened me out on a few things. So I suppose it, it had some help. But I didn't visit the Adventist church, even though I had this miracle on my doorstep. The Bible says, test everything. And I knew enough of my Bible... To, to know that I should do that. And so I said to her, if I find one thing that's not biblical, I, I won't definitely won't join this church. So for months and months and months, I did the Voice of Prophecy lessons. We had our own school in England. 
I did, I did lessons on the prophecy, on, on the life of Christ, on health. And, um, and when I finished all of those, I, I wrote to her and I, I said, I really do believe that this is God's true church. This seems to be biblical and I'd like to visit. So she was thrilled. She wrote me a letter and she, she, um, she said, the devil will not let you go without a struggle. Now, I thought that was a kind of interesting thing because I really knew the Lord Jesus Christ. But I was a kind of lone Christian that I didn't have the, the checks and the balances of, of the church family. So I, I visited the church and I got on an English bus, a double-decker red bus. And I was going to a part of Manchester I'd never been before. So I, I wasn't acquainted, didn't really know where to get off. So I said to the conductor, he's the man that took the money, I said, tell me to, where to get off at Wilbraham Road. And he said, okay, no problem. And he forgot. Now, I knew there was a morning service and there was an afternoon service. So I wasn't, it, it's, I, I'm sharing this with you so that you can understand a little bit where either unbelievers or new Christians, where they're coming from. I really desperately needed the fellowship. But there was something within me that was so skeptical of churches. Uh, so I had this almost split personality on going to this church. But so I'm on the bus and thinking, boy, this is a long ride. So I asked the conductor, where's this Wilbraham Road? He said, oh, that's miles back that way. Um, just jump on another bus, use the same tickets, no problem. So I thought, no, I'm just going to walk. You can see the reluctance on my part to actually go. And I walked and I got there for the afternoon service. Now, I didn't realize, maybe I've been told, but I didn't really understand, I suppose, that that afternoon service was a baptism. So I stood there on the opposite side of, of the church. And behind me, with a big steeple, was a Church of England building. And over the road, a flat-looking uh, building that it looked like you could just blow it over was the Adventist church. And flowing into this church were just these Jamaican people. So here's the first attack of the devil. The devil said to me, this is nothing for you. Let them have their, their worship, but this is nothing for you. And the Holy Spirit was saying, hey, you've promised to go. Now cross that road and just step into that church. And so with fear and trepidation, I crossed that road. And I entered the foyer. And they had Mr. Edwards just planted waiting for me. Mrs. Brown had told everybody, hey, be looking for this young white guy. He's going to be coming. And they expected me Sabbath morning. And here I am in the early afternoon. And so, so he was there. And he was, did everything right. And he just said, hello, good afternoon, and welcome. And I saw everybody going through these doors. Those were the doors of the sanctuary. And, and I, did, I didn't even know what a sanctuary was. And, uh, and I said, what's going on in there? And, and if he would have said to me, oh, they're going to have a baptism, I would have just grabbed my Bible. I would have said, show me. That's just where the way my mind worked. And to some extent still does. I'm not impressed when people philosophize with me, even though I love philosophy You've got to show me from the Bible that something is true. And uh, so he says, why not go in and see? And it was a perfect answer. So, oh, yeah, well, why not? And as soon as I sat down on that pew, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. 
God spoke to me. Very real, very tangible, and said, this is your spiritual home. So you know what I call that? The outer witness is when you're interacting with Scripture. What I had been doing for months and months and months with the voice of prophecy. But there's also the inner witness of the Spirit. And we need both. Because the devil, when he attacks, you had better know inwardly as well as objectively, subjectively and objectively, that God is for you. So anyway, I never looked back from that. Every Sabbath I would jump on that bus and I would go to that church and I would even go to the midweek meeting. And it was in the midweek meeting, which even many Adventist churches no longer have that. And I don't even remember what the pastor said. That wasn't important, but whatever he said, it touched my heart. And I said to his wife, I would just just like to serve Jesus just constantly. And and she says, oh, why don't you attend uh, Newbold College? And I didn't know anything about Newbold College. That's the Seventh-day Adventist College. So I visited there. I actually took a GED exam, an American exam. I mean, don't ask me about American presidents when I've never even been to America and had not had a whole lot of interest in America. But I took a GED exam to get into Newbold College, and somehow, miraculously, I passed that and uh, started studying to be a pastor. So at every step of the way... I can see God has a plan and God has a purpose for me. And He has a plan and a purpose for you too. And that's what we're doing as we're going through these verses in Romans 8. We're we're understanding some of the mystery, not all of it, but some of the mystery of this incredible plan and this purpose that God has for each one of us. Yesterday, I was with the youth at the lake. And I got an opportunity to talk with a young lady. She was very inquisitive. She wanted to know about England. She wanted to know about Norway. She wanted to know about different places that we had lived, the Middle East and so on. And then I found out after maybe 15 minutes of conversation that she wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. Well, the assumption was that I I was just with young Seventh-day Adventist people. And so um, I'm hoping that before I leave here, I can spend some time with her. Uh, trying to explain more clear. I said, has anybody really told you about Jesus? No, not really. So, even here at this camp meeting, there are people who need to know about Jesus Christ. Okay, that was a little detour. Now we're back to verse 31. So there can be forces against us. I think a lot of it is what is going on within ourselves that can be the problem. Um, He who did not spare his own son, verse 32, Jesus Christ, but gave him up for us all. So it was God's plan to send Jesus, for Jesus to be the representative of the human race, so that you and I also could be saved. Aren't you glad that Jesus died for you? I mean, we wish it could have happened some other way, but this is God's plan, God's purpose. It wasn't the Romans, it wasn't the Jews. It wasn't just our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. God the Father sent the Son. Before the creation of this world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had huddled together to figure out this plan of salvation. 
So he gave him up for us all. How will he not also? So if he's done the hardest thing, his son dying for our sins, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies, Romans 5, while we were sinners, if God has done that, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, God's going to complete the job. So it fits in very well here with Romans 5. How much more? If God has done this, why would you even think he wouldn't finish the job? He wouldn't do the rest. Okay, so that's the idea that we have there in verse 32. Now, this verse 33 is really interesting. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, I don't know if you know, but God always deals with us on a legal basis. So I want us to think a little bit about that. And what we have here in these verses is like a law court setting. So let, let me finish the verse and then do a little bit of explaining there. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? So can you imagine as you... As you Read these verses. Can you imagine that there's a law court? And you're the accused. And I talked briefly about that. I think it was yesterday. And we know we're guilty. The evidence is there. We bow our heads. And I think I illustrated that, that with you. And the only thing that counts, you may have the devil as the prosecuting attorney. Um, and, if we, and if we've forgotten any sins, he's certainly going to remember them. Right? the accuser of the brethren. But you have someone in your corner. It's always good to have someone in your corner, right? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to really complete the illustration, Scripture also speaks of Jesus as not just being your defender, but also being your judge. Right? So you have two in your corner, if I can put it that way. So... And that's the key thing, that you have Jesus for you and not against you. So everything that you're accused of is correct. It's true. Maybe the devil throws a few things in that have been forgotten. But Jesus Christ forgives us our past, our present, our future sins. It's important to see salvation that way. It has a past context. He has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. All of these ways of talking about salvation are mentioned in the Scripture. So, this is done on a legal basis. So then the real question is, is it just and right and legal what God is doing? That somebody can die in your place. That you don't pay the penalty yourself. Somebody else has paid that penalty for you. Well, whatever we think about that, the Bible says, yes, that is just. God is just, it says in Romans, and the justifier of, of the one who trusts in him. So, so get a hold, um, maybe study this alone on your own, this whole idea of legal. When you go through the Old Testament and, and also the New Testament, the idea of covenant gives us that concept. Think, think of the passages in, in Deuteronomy, for example, where God says, um, 
these are the blessings and these are the curses. Now, it's all about the covenant. It's interpreting the covenant. The covenant is a legal contract drawn up by God. So if we say yes to the covenant, so that's equivalent for us to saying yes, yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the way that it's explained in Deuteronomy is if you will be faithful to the covenant, do your part of the covenant, all these blessings will kick in. And the blessings are incredible blessings, right? Your shoes will not wear out. Hey, Nike's out of business right there. Your children will not be formed. They will not be stillbirths. You will not have the, the diseases of the Egyptians upon you. We, we at least know the diseases of, of, of wealthy Egyptians because we, we dig up their mummies and we examine their bodies and we can find out what they've been eating and, and what diseases they had in their body. None of this will come upon you. Incredible promises. But if not, what kicks in? The curses. The blessings and the curses. But, but notice it's all on a legal basis. It's not on a subjective, fuzzy, fuzzy feeling. I wonder if God really loves me or not. Or I wonder if I really love God or not. It's done on this legal basis and it's drawn out and it's, and it's very, very clear in Scripture. Now when Jesus comes along, He says, I, I, I come with a new covenant. Well, there's really only one covenant ever. It's explained in different ways under the time of David and Samuel and so on, but there's only truly one way of getting saved. So we don't ever want to fall into the whole dispensationalist idea of God's plan having to change and be adjusted along the way because that's, that's not biblical and uh, people being saved by law-keeping in one dispensation and being saved um, by grace in some other... All of that is, is baloney. It's not, not biblical. There's only one way of getting saved, and it's God's way of getting saved. So that's what we need to get a hold of, and that's what we need, need to be obedient to. And there also is a tendency, I'll throw this in for what it's worth, that you can be fairly clear when you're a new Christian about your salvation. With me, it was like night and day. I knew what sin was. I knew what it was to be lost. And now I know what it was to, to be saved. And it was, it was kind of like a Damascus Road type, type experience. But after some years, if you're not careful, you can start falling on uh, trying to live this Christian life in your own strength. And there can be a very, very subtle shift that can take place over a number of years. And you can find yourself almost in the con condition of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Now, that's not inevitable, as long as we keep at the forefront of our mind the importance of what Christ has done for us on the cross, His death, His resurrection, and so on. But can you see the idea of the legal uh, aspects in verse 33 and 34. That's what I want to bring out here. He, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. So here's the cross again. Paul always brings everything back to the cross. But more than that, who was raised to life. Now, it's interesting. Many people died on crosses in Jesus' day, right? One on each side of him when he died. When Jerusalem uh, was being attacked in AD 70... There were crosses as far as the eye could see. 
you try to sneak out at night to maybe gather a few herbs because starvation was happening within Jerusalem and you were caught in the morning, your family would look over the wall and see you hanging on a cross. So many people were dying on crosses. What is special about Jesus? How do you know that His death on His cross really worked with God? How do you know? Because he rose from the dead. That is God's stamp of approval upon the life, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He kept the, he kept the demands, the legal demands of God perfectly. Every aspect, word, thought, deed. And then he sealed that on the cross with his blood. How do we know if it's been accepted by God? The destiny of the whole human race hangs upon that man on the cross. How do we know? Well, praise God, he was raised from the dead. More than that, he ascended up to heaven, entered into the glory with God. They threw a party for him. They celebrated. They gave gifts unto men, it says in Ephesians, when God poured out his Spirit on the day of Pentecost. All right, so in verse 34, raised to life, is also at the right hand of God. So can you get the picture? Yes, he died. Is that important? Really important. Well, more than that, he was raised from the dead. Is that important? Big time important. But more than that, he ascended up to God. He's interceding for himself, for us. Who are us? Who are us? At this point, you should be thinking more than sinners because we're saints. I mean, I see halos on your head. Some of them might be slipping, but I see halos on your head. So we're saints, right? But what have we learned from Romans 8? Think in terms of Romans 8 up to this point. We are the, the us. We are the foreknown those of you that were here yesterday, right? Or for loved. We are the predestined. We are the called. We are the justified. I really haven't explained justification by faith a whole lot. Justification, does it include the forgiveness of our sins? I hear about three of you said that. Yes, of course it does. That's glorious. Most of us spend most of our time thanking God for forgiveness. It's a glorious concept. It's a glorious theme. So yes, but what else in justification? That's like one side of the coin. What is the other side? His perfect life? No, not sanctification. We're talking about justification now. Let's keep them separate. I know they're not separate. Let's keep them distinct in our thinking. God will not <coughs> justify anyone he doesn't sanctify. And some of you are a little, little confused on why, why didn't God include sanctification in one of these five steps? Foreknown. What's the next one? Or foreloved. Yeah, that's the first one. What's the second one? Don't look at your Bibles. Just look at me. Force your brain to think it through. And that's how you'll remember it. For known, next one was 
predestined. Next one was called. Next one was justified. Next one was glorified, past tense. Anyway, justification is the declaration of God. So it's the judge in the courtroom declaring you are in a right relationship with him. Now God, <clears throat> we haven't studied this, but in, in Romans 4, 4, 5, I think it is, God justifies the ungodly. He is not justifying those who are keeping his commandments. Jesus says, I came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. So, don't ever fall into the trap. And I know it's there in the Adventist church. I've come across it many times. Where we go to people and we say, if you will just keep the Sabbath. If you will just keep this commandment. They have no power and ability to do that. Certainly not in the way that is pleasing to God. So don't fall into that trap. Your role, your role and my role in witnessing to the unbeliever is to try and help them to see their serious condition of sin. You can do that by walking them through the Ten Commandments. Sometimes you'll do that and they'll say, I've kept all those. Sometimes that will happen, not very often. So then you have to take them through what? The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Take them through that, walk them through that. That's an interpretation of, of the law in a, in a most spiritual way. And then another way is to compare them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you go through those steps with people, they should figure out that they're sinners. Once they figure out that they're sinners, you offer them something. What are you going to offer them? The Lord Jesus Christ and His death. And Jesus is the most attractive person, but people have to feel a need before they're going to re truly respond to Him in a saving way. Not just to admire Him, not just to follow Him, um, but have no interest in His death on the cross and His blood that was shed for us. So those are steps that we can take to help people. When I'm with this young lady, if I get a chance to spend uh, some time with her today, that's, kind of, well, that's the, the direction that I'm going to be coming. Now, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to where she's coming from. It's very important to do that. But you better believe that I'm going to try and convict her of sin. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that. But he can use us to, to assist in that. And then, of course, offer her the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if she would embrace that. All right, so justification is primarily a declaration, the Lord of the universe saying, they are right with me. When they are justified by faith, this is the ungodly now, the one that is under the wrath of God, the one that's totally out of that right relationship with God. When they are justified by God, there's no separation in time here. We're just making distinction so we can understand these concepts. Then God immediately begins the process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit enters into that individual and everything that God wants them to be as a Christian is given to them at that point in time. We do not have to ha uh, wait for some second blessing as, as some areas of Pentecostalism teach us. There's a lot of, lot of uh, misunderstanding on, on these things. So justification, it's a glorious, important 
concept to understand. And then, of course, we mentioned yesterday glorification. So here, he's interceding for us. What is Jesus doing for us in heaven right now? What's he doing for us? Because we've already said we've gone from foreknowledge to glorification. So you could say in one sense, he's not saving us because we're already saved. And then in another sense, you could say, well, yes, he is saving us because this process of sanctification is still ongoing. So I suppose you could say both if you explain them the, the right way. Do you find these times that you need strengthening within? Jesus interceding for you. So it's, it's, it's incredibly encouraging to think, and the book of Hebrews spends a lot of time on the, the importance of Jesus as our high priest. So, But many of us have not really thought through what really is he doing for us. And so, so that's, we don't have time to go into that, but that is implicit in this statement who is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So all this talk of predestination and foreknowledge and calling... It's just another way of talking about the love of God. The love of God, how deep is that? How many hymns do we have on that? It, it's, 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 we'll be, we will be learning about it for eternity. We will be seeing constantly new aspects of the love of God. So that's what we're talking about. Is this the Advent message? Even when we take that phrase, justification by faith, Ellen White was asked in her day, and you know that there was a big struggle. Those of you that know Adventist history, there was a big struggle on this, and God raised up Jones and Wagner to bring some, some clarity to this, and Ellen White seemed to hitch her wagon with them. Not that she agreed with absolutely everything that they taught, but they were giving an emphasis, a corrective to Adventism in that period of time that was really necessary. And so she was asked about justification by faith. And, and she said, this is the third angel's message in verity. So, lots of ways of packaging this. I admit that. Find a way that works for you and run with it and share it with people. So here it's put in terms of who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword... Is, has Paul missed anything? Didn't we say that yesterday? <laughs> yeah, maybe he's missed something here. No, he hasn't missed anything. He's covering all the bases. This was a man that learned the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think Jesus understood the gospel? He lived it. He was the gospel. He is the gospel. So, whether in vision, face-to-face, whatever way it happened... Paul was taught this gospel. He says specifically, I didn't, didn't get it from Peter. I didn't get it from the apostles in Jerusalem. This is something he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we, are, we face death all day long. Verse 36, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all of these things, we are what? More than conquerors! That reminds me of Romans 5. Much more, much more, much more. Grace is more powerful. 
Sin reigned, but now grace reigns. So much more. We are more than conquerors. For us to, to um, live our Christian life as though we are spiritual paupers is a slap in the face to God. Shall I repeat that? That's worth writing down. It's a slap in the face to God. We are more, much more than conquerors. God has covered all the bases. He's missed nothing. And it's you and me that are the recipients of these tremendous blessings from God. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Again, past tense, pointing us back to the cross of Calvary. For I am convinced. I am persuaded. Are you? Are you more convinced and more persuaded now than four days ago? You should be. You may not understand, I may not understand all the nuances of this. I'm learning new things constantly as I go over these verses. But we should be persuaded, we should be convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, not height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And look how he ends that phrase. In Christ Jesus our Lord. His favorite phrase. It's just amazing how majestic, how glorious this is, the way that it is put together. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There never can be. It is absolutely impossible. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And so all of these blessings, no condemnation because you're justified by faith. That's, that's the thought there. And then it ends up with no separation. Now, let me ask you as, as we wrap this up. This kind of emphasis, this way that we've been approaching Scripture... Is it worth sharing within the Adventist community? We had a presenter from La Sierra who was giving us what he sees as four Gospels in the Seventh-day Adventist Church here in North America. He talked about historical Adventism. He talked about evangelical Adventism. He talked about um, progressive Adventism. He talked about missional Adventism. And he explained the way that he he saw those different things. We can't afford to have four Gospels. There's only one true Gospel. Paul was willing to lay down his life for that one Gospel. And if somebody tried to come in with another version, or an improved version, because believe me, these false teachers that come into places like Galatia, they're not saying, hey, what Paul said is wrong. They're not that stupid. They will say, say that it's fine what Paul says, but let's throw in circumcision or add something. And Paul says, who has bewitched you? You foolish Galatians. If I was your pastor and talked to you that way, you'd kick me out of your church. So you can see the importance, just in, in the Galatian language, of of making sure we understand the gospel, we preserve the gospel, we guard the gospel, 
because there will, from outside and from within, be people that will try and give us another version. And usually that other version is, 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 is man's works righteousness in some way. Well, we're through. You're cold. You're getting hungry now. And it's time for breakfast. Let's bow our heads and thank God for what we found in Romans 8. Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us is, is more, at least more convinced, more persuaded that you really do love us and that nothing shall separate us from your love. And that the work you have begun within us when you justified us as you're sanctifying us will indeed be completed in in our glorification, in your glorification, when we share and enter into your glory. Lord, the one that believes this, the one that has this hope, purifies and sanctifies themselves. We realize we have a short time, Lord, on this earth. We realize that Jesus will come soon. So use us in any capacity. Just give us a spirit of obedience, a spirit of trust, a spirit of of uh, surrender. Help us to enjoy the, the, the relationship we have with you. Help that relationship to grow, grow, grow. Make us more loving, more kind, more considerate. Help us to really love you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and to love our brothers and sisters in the faith. And yes, Lord, it's good to be reminded that your love is for the whole world. So that may that be our love too. Give us a spirit of mission, a spirit of witness, a burden for the lost. My Lord, we long for that day when Jesus, the head of the church, will reconcile the things in heaven with the things of, of earth. And there will be one grand family of God. And we will be praising you throughout eternity sending your son to die for us on the cross. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good camp meeting.